Welcome to another Cosmic Salon, and this is a much-anticipated episode as I have uh, someone that, strangely enough, I had recently just discovered, and it's, I don't know, the, the serendipitous universe, uh, I guess, brings this person into my purview at this time and I have spent countless hours listening to every video reading all that I can of this intense and broad work that he has produced and then reached out I had Patrick reach out and get him on for what I hope will be a small series diving into some very interesting topics that everyone that comes to these shores knows I am a deep diver in, and this is kind of where my world purview lies. So with that, the person I'm bringing on is Gary Wayne. And per usual on my show, I am going to let Gary bring in his bio relevant to what he feels he would like to bring forth in reading uh, a bio off of a sheet. So with that said, I welcome you to the Cosmic Salon, Gary. This is a great honor. Thank you for being here. Well, thank you so much for inviting me and so happy to be here and very much looking forward to talking about things that hopefully will help your audience maybe connect some more dots, get a little bit more information and hopefully raise a little more curiosity. Yes, that's my big message in the world. It's a mysterious world out there, and the more we're open to it, the more mysterious it is and spiritual is what I have found. In the vein of how I do this, is there anything you want to say about your bio, about who you are in, I guess, this realm, this life as Gary Wayne that you want to start with? Yeah, I think people should know that I'm, I consider myself more of a researcher than anything else and trying to get out information that I've come across and have put together. And that was kind of the inspiration for, for my book as well. And I come at it from what I call a contrarian or a Christian contrarian perspective. And what I mean by that as a contrarian is, is I don't necessarily accept what somebody says or what somebody says, something says, or what somebody might say, somebody said. (laughs) And so I tend to verify it for myself so that I can have a sense of reliability and a stronger structure to sort of place my speculation on when I tend to speculate and or be able to present enough information to people to give them comfort that, hey, there's something to this. And so not only do I apply that as a Christian to the Bible, I apply that to everything else that I read and research is I want to be able to get to the source if I can. And I also like to be able to measure what is said outside the Bible against what is inside the Bible. And I'm looking for context and I'm looking for something that maybe not doesn't align with the Bible. And then I need to analyze how does that sort of fit in? Because I think there's a lot of different lenses out there that provide the information that people require, no matter what your belief system is. I think people need to know this information and then they need to be able to have enough of it to be able to make some decisions on their own. So I'm a researcher and I'm a contrarian. And how I matched that up was when I was younger, I was very much a reader and a passion for mythology and a 
passion for history. And so when I decided to write the Genesis 6 conspiracy, I thought after writing the first 10 chapters, which are pretty easy to do, I thought, you know what, I want to be able to get in another couple of lanes of perspective that turned into a lot more lanes. But I wanted to match in or enter in some of my background and knowledge of mythology and history. But, you know, when you start to do that, you get into the mythology of things and the history, and you look at what influences that. You understand there's religions that are influencing both of those. And within the religions, there are mystery schools. And within the mystery schools come out come out the secret societies and how information and knowledge is developed within those particular societies. So when I went down those rabbit holes, it led me into many more lanes. But the more I dug, the more I saw everybody was talking about the same kinds of things through different lenses, whether or not it was through a polytheist lens or a monotheist lens or a secular lens. They're all talking about the same thing. They just will have a few biases to it. And a couple, you know, a couple different perspectives on it that is important to sort of sit back and take note of, I think. Your book is comprehensive. And for people coming to the table not knowing exactly what it is, it's the Genesis 6 conspiracy, how secret societies and the descendants of giants plan to enslave humankind. And it's phenomenal for anyone out there, no matter what your bias is. This is an amazing work, and I highly recommend everyone get it if you're into the mysteries, just on that note alone. I was just going to sort of add to that, that it is written from a Christian perspective, but when I enter in the other sort of views that whether or not it's polytheist or secular, I let those people doing the writing or the history speak for itself. And I don't manipulate it. I I just sort of lay it out and say, here's what they said. Here's how it lines up with the Bible. And here's where it differs from the Bible, because I didn't want people to say that, okay, it's written because you need to have a bias in terms of how you write a book so that you sort of hit your target audience, which I didn't really want to do, but to get published, you need to do that. And so I went for my, my preferred bias, obviously. And so, but I didn't want to have people look at that I was applying information that was manipulated because I hate it when people manipulate the Bible. I also hate it when people manipulate other religions and don't present it in a a clear, precise, and accurate way. You accomplish that. It, this is, I mean, this is why this is so powerful and why it's moved me. I just consider myself a spiritual seeker. I have no knee-jerk response to anyone speaking from their bias religiously. I move into it with an open heart. This work has moved me, though, and it's brought so much into my life. And so with this first interaction with you, I have, there's so much in your book, that uh, I wanted to start with parsing the idea of bloodlines. We'll lay down some, some general stuff so everyone gets on the same page. I wanted to look at the seraphim. You know, these are described as well, as reptilians, kind of. To get everyone on the same page, let's look at the ideas here first in the basics of Reptilians, as they are now seen in the modern zeitgeist, if you will. And then I want to juxtapose that with pulling up to the ideas of what are angels in the canon and how do they relate to angles through sacred geometry. And if we could just kind of start there and then move our way into the idea of where the seraphim have been as we go back to as far back as we can go. You know, I see them in Gobekli Tepe in the statuary. So, but clearly they're in Genesis and they're in Isaiah in, in the book of numbers. Yeah. Very, very good uh, place to start with seraphim angels. And I'll probably, I'm going to backpedal just a little bit 
and sort of place them in an area that we need to be understanding of in terms of how it sort of will roll down through not only Christianity, Judaism, Islam, and many of the polytheist religions. And there's a a couple interesting passages in the book of First Enoch that talks about the watchers. Yes. And the watchers are referred to as a, a group of angels that are around the throne of God. And those three that are classified as watchers, and I'm not talking about the archangels because that's another classification of angels and there's many different classes of of angels which most people aren't familiar with but talking about the three that are the watchers you have the cherubim which most people are familiar with or the cherubs that they're were depicted in assyrian uh, mythology and religions and you have a group called the ophanim that Enoch talks about. And they're not talked about in the Bible, but these are a special set. They're very similar to the cherubim. They may be a, a distinction of the cherubim, but they have one face that's different than the cherubim. And, and so they are a little bit distinct. So the word ofan is the Hebrew word for wheel. And another word is gagel. You have to be careful in terms of the application. But what's being used in First Enoch, even though we don't have the original Hebrew manuscript that's in full, just fragments, sort of suggests that it's based on the Hebrew language just through that one word, ofan. And the I-M is the male plural. And so it means the wheel. And so when you look at Ezekiel um, 1 in chapter 10, when it talks about the throne of God and the wheels within the wheels and the eyes within the wheels, this is talking about the Ophanium. Mm. And so you have the cherubim, uh, you have the Ophanium, and then you have the seraphim. And the seraphim are a group of angels that in Isaiah 6 are described as living amongst and dwelling amongst and working amongst the fiery stones before the altar of God and are ministers before God as we kind of understand that because one of them actually takes a fiery coal and puts it to the lips of Isaiah and takes away his sin. So kind of like a priestly minister sort of position. And they're also in charge of government and religion on earth in terms of how the hierarchy will go both with the rebellious angels and with the loyal angels. And so the seraphim are described as fiery seraphim face angels, which means seraph, and seraph means serpent. So these had the faces of a serpent and they had six wings. Yes. And so these angels, as with all angels, would have been created before creation. And they're created before the heavens and the earth. And they're watching as God puts all of this together. And so they go right back to the beginning. So they're very, very, very old. And these fiery serpent angels do show up in, in a few other applications in the Bible other than these six-winged, flying, opalescent, shining with the color of burning fire and sometimes described as burning bronze um, that have six wings. And so that would be described as also, I would call, a heavenly dragon. And in antiquity, a dragon was known as both a serpent and a dragon and connected very closely akin to the crocodile. And so all of those sort of reptilian type of, of angelic beings and or gods in the, in the polytheist religions that have that face are kind of closely related to the seraphim rank of, of, of angel. We also have... Satan, who is called a serpent and a dragon and a red dragon in Revelation 12. And red, as you take that back to Greek, actually means the color of fire. Yes. And so when you have them as a dragon, that's matching up to what my description is talking about 
in Isaiah with the seraphim angels, a flying dragon, as opposed to an earthly dragon, which is something we can maybe get into in a few minutes, But because I don't want to confuse people. But this is something from the spiritual dimension as opposed to the physical dimension, which is important to remember, even though angels can take a physical form in the physical world. So Satan, in some form, was a seraphim. And he had nine jewels. So as the Levites had 12 jewels on their vests as priests, he was seemingly the high priest and not only as the leader of all of the rebellious angels, but at one time the high priest and a seraphim before God. But even more so, he was also cherubim, which is also one of the watchers. And cherubim are the angels that have their wings that cover the throne, just as you might imagine the Ark of the Covenant. Um, those would be cherubim on there. And in Ezekiel 28, he's talked about walking amongst the fiery stones. So Satan is more than just cherubim. He's seraphim. And he's also archangel from the beginning and is probably one of the first creations of of angels and he would probably have led the seraphim angels with having that sort of power and and ministry in the beginning and so we need to understand the seraphim angels in that sort of context and so when you get into deuteronomy or the book of numbers you have a seraphim that's being referred to that's different than a serpent as you take that back to Hebrew. So you have to know, and and the Bible doesn't really do in its English translations a good job of explaining which words are what and that they're not necessarily the same being. And so a seraphim, as I've described it, is used to uh, in numbers to have an image made of it to put on a pole to cure the Israelites from poisonous snakes that are attacking them. And so you've got fiery serpents, which will go back to seraphim that is being used. And then you have poisonous because, again, um, that word can mean fiery or poisonous. You have to understand the application. But when it's not using seraphim for the snake, and it's really only used for the the pole in one, one or two applications, the rest goes back to the Hebrew word nakash. Yes. That is the same word that's used for the serpent that was in Eden that deceived Adam and Eve in the fall, which, you know, pretty much all polytheism has a similar sort of legend about, particularly in Western polytheism with the Gnostics and associated mystical groups. So this is sort of a common thread of having both of these types of beings within those religions. And so... If we want to look at that, at how these powerful, powerful seraphim angels kind of work back their way into Enoch is they're the watchers that created the Nephilim giants. They're the ones who swore the oath on Mount Hermon to carry out their vow to create these beings um, upon any consequence or mutual imprecation as i believe the wording is is talked about and so it's a it's a curse of denunciation that they're going to do it no matter what i know i'm going down a bit of a rabbit trail but i just want to get back to that these are the sons of god that genesis 6 talks about who are the watchers and as i mentioned earlier they're in charge of governance and they're in charge of religion as the hierarchy comes down to the earth and down through the angelic orders and so we get watchers that shows up in Daniel four three times. And these are the ones that come from heaven to talk to Daniel and talks about governance and kings and their responsibilities. So you have that sort of connection. And most people don't make that connection that the sons of God are the watchers, are the seraphim angels, and the watchers described in Enoch include the seraphim. So we have these rebellious angels who revelation 12 will say by that particular point in time which is at the three and a half year point of the last seven years of this age fully one-third will have rebelled so i don't know whether or not they all rebelled at the same time but they rebel and they form the pantheon of gods around the world yes 
And, and they have a same similar sort of hierarchy. And the pantheons are pretty much identical around the world. They just have different vernacular names. And what's important about that is, is if you understand that angels, fallen angels and gods, depending on whatever perspective you're coming at this on, if you understand that they're the same, then you'll understand when we get into other cultures about these ancient gods and how they're described that it starts to match up. So we get seraphims in Gnosticism that are very easy to match up because they're called seraphim and or serpent angels, depending on which gospel that, that you're reading in. But when you get, let's say, into the Kishamaya and into the Incas and into the Aztecs, they have the plume serpent or the feathered serpent as their gods. And these are the seraphim angels. And so when seraphim angels take their physical form in the physical world with those wings, that's the feathers that they're talking about. And the serpent part obviously is their face. So they're they can they can become a physical flying dragon, still shining and opalescent. Um, but they can take a physical form in the physical world. So these are the same gods that are in subcontinent of India, which are the Nagas. Yes. And they're described similarly to them. And in fact, more specifically related to the cobra, which is why you have the cobra sort of interacting into Egyptian mythology. And the Ogdog gods, which are basically the parent gods, are mostly reptilian in nature. And there's a few other ones in there as well. Somebody Google's Ogdod, O-G-D-O-A-D. You'll get these creepy-looking gods that show up. But Osiris and Isis were all considered, you know, as part of the offspring gods, were also considered serpent gods. And that's why you see Osiris depicted as a serpent. And you have these flying seraphim serpent angels as part of uh, reliefs and, and tokens and jewelry that comes out of Egypt. In Sumeria, you have gods like Anki and Enlil, again, second-tier gods, uh, you know, uh, and both of those being the offspring of Anu, uh, the parent god, and there's usually 10 or 12 parent gods in the polytheisms around the world, but they're all described as serpent gods as well. And so when you move over to China, you get the same term, but only expressed as a dragon creator god. Yes. And so those are the same gods as well. They're talking all around the world about the same gods. And so when you move into the Greek mythology, originally they were depicted as serpents as well. This is a common world heritage and legacy that has been recorded, documented, and, you know, originally through the oral tradition, but later written down around the world that all talk about the same kinds of beings. So that's sort of a quick introduction into seraphim angels. That's exactly what I wanted to lay down for people to understand that they're everywhere and they always have been. And I'm trying to present some information to people that may have knee-jerk responses to them just being in relation to the canon. And so I have a quick question here. When we look at the idea of a trans-morphing or a moving up in state, and I only say up because of the angelic order, but from cherubim to seraphim, how does that actually work? What are the mechanics of that? Yeah, there's a definitely an angelic hierarchy, and it's in combination with the thrones. So let's first of all imagine you have a throne of God and you have these watchers and the archangels that are around the throne. Now, if you imagine that Satan wanted to be like God, and have his throne raised to heaven like God. And even though he is the God of this earth, at least for a time, he would have a throne room like that as well. So what I'm basically saying is you can imagine the same type of hierarchy implemented by the polytheist pantheon as with the monotheist organizational structure of angels. 
And of course, Satan would be at that head on, on the polytheist side as one of, if, you know, would be the chief sort of parent god, as I would sort of understand it. So the throne is essentially going to have the Ophanium and the Cherubim sort of stay around. They're, that's where their operational uh, MO and guys and deployment is for. But the seraphim and the archangels will then sort of bring down in three different pillars with the seraphim having two, um, the three orders that sort of come down. And it comes down through that angelically and then as it's done on earth. So what's done on earth as done in heaven, if you want to look at it from that perspective. So the archangels are in charge of the military. And so then the ranks of the angels, they would be the fighting ones and the chief angels and the leaders, along with mighties and, and other angels that would go down to regular angels that would fill out the ranks. And then with the seraphim, they're in charge of the religious order and the governmental order. So all of the religions and the priests and the hierarchy and whatever religion they would be the ones that would be answering to that. Uh, and again, having angels uh, as part of that sort of rank and order and other ranks of angels as well. And then you would have the, uh, the, the government class and you would have uh, <clears throat> that under the seraphim angels and coming down with different ranks. So when I talk about different kinds of angels that are going to intermix in there there's a number of them whether or not it's the powers which can go back to dunamis mm. or it is the mighties or it's the um <clears throat> the virtues uh there's several different ranks that are mentioned in in, in the bible and i won't in the principalities and yeah. and go on and on and on but they all fit under those three pillars within the order of the hierarchy now, if you wanted to imagine how that sort of comes down to the earth and is manifested in the earth, because, and I'll loop back to this in a second, you have, as probably the best analogy I can give that's a visual, is, is look at a chessboard. And so consider this as in heaven and, and in, on earth, and it's set up based on knowledge of this world, so it's set up in the dualistic, polytheist sort of concept where you have good versus evil and black versus white and this perpetual battle that's going on. But you have on earth as the king, which is representing government on earth as they have been nominated and awarded and and supported by the seraphim government class, but it split into the another aspect of the duality of polytheism, which is the male and the female, as in the, the mother goddess and, and the father god. And so you have a king and a queen, and these are the divine representatives, and as they believe, the kings and the queens, they take their genealogies back to the offspring of the of the watchers and back to the fallen angels. So they're the divine representatives. And that's where King James was alluding to when he said he had the divine right to rule and how he came about it and the bloodlines that he would have had and did have to make that, that assertion. Yes. And then for the religious class, you have the two bishops, right? You, again, you would have a male and a female on the bishop side. And then you would have for the military class, which is headed by the archangels, you would have represented by the knights. And in the Middle Ages was, was changed to a knight because that was sort of the evolution of what would have been riding on elephants or chariots. But that's what have been that would represent the archangel and the military aspect. And understand that the angelic realm is the host of heaven. Yes. And that means an army and rank. So understand that this there's a, a hierarchical order there just by part of their names. And of course, the rooks are these mighty angels that are talked about that do specific uh, battles and certain things that are a special rank. And those are the mighties. And the mighties are represented by the rooks, which were the mighty fortresses that 
these ancient city-states set up. And typically in the Middle East and in, in biblical history, in Sumerian history, they would have been set up in pentapolis city-states or five city-states that worked in a defensive uh, cohesion and tactic and strategy to to ward off their enemies, and they would have these huge walls. And then the pawns are the poor and the humans that are sort of the sacrificial pawns, so to speak. And in the angelic realm, that would be the average messenger sort of angel. So if that gives you a bit of a a visual and an understanding, imagine those three lanes, and imagine that you have these thrones now imagine that there's going to be more than Satan's throne on that in the polytheist side. I'm going to sort of intermix a little bit here to sort of explain what I'm talking about. In Psalms 82, it talks about the council of the gods um, that God will walk through once in a while. But this is the council of the gods that, that answer to Satan on earth as the God and the prince of this earth. And that council of gods is represented of the number of nations, as Deuteronomy 32 talks about. And it talks about the numbers of this nation as being the same that come out of the sons of Jacob in Egypt, which is 70, and the nations that disperse from Babel, which is in many, many cultures as well, the Babel story, um, which were 70 nations listed in the Bible of patriarchs, and the same number for the Adamite nations before the flood. So there are 70 main gods for 70 nations around the world, probably with another throne room Mm. that would have cherubim, that would have seraphim, that would have archangels, and also would have ophanim. And then as those nations expanded, um, they would have other sort of not vassal nations, but I guess um, offspring nations as they spread around the world. And then they would be part of that 70 nations hierarchy with the God. And there would probably be some throne rooms around the world as well. But there'd be a hierarchy that goes through all of those individual offspring nations. And then a hierarchy that takes you down to angels within those different nations that would give the instructions for their divine representatives, the king and the queen of those various bloodlines and nations on earth. So hopefully that made some sense to you. Yes, it did. And thank you for that. The visualization as well. I think that really helps painting the the picture. Just to get this off the table. So when we look at Satan starts as, as basically a cherubim, right? Uh, he's cherubim and, then and he he's seraphim but and how, he's archangel so how, and he's high priest. How he has does many that titles. work? That's what I'm saying. How does it work that he can be, be all of those? Because he's the most powerful, interesting creation after the word of God and the spirit of God and would be before his rebellion and his fall would be, I guess, fourth, if you would put it in that sort of hierarchy. Mm -hmm. And to be above all the other angels, he's given these other titles and aspects that also gives him a connection to those kinds of of, uh, angels. And we don't know how many titles he actually had, but we do know, and whether or not this is a corruption, or it's another title in uh, what's recorded in First Enoch is that the angel that was involved in Eden and deceiving, involved with deceiving of Eden with an Akash is called Gadriel. Yes. Which doesn't line up with uh, what the Bible says unless there's a different title. And Gadriel means wall of God. So he may have had another title that he was providing whatever protection or he was in charge of everything, you know, sort of surrounding uh, God. Uh, And so even the other watchers would be subservient to him or secondary to him. That's how far he fell. He was completely unique in the angelic realm. And then we see that. They say, holy, holy, holy. This is seraphim. Mm -hmm. 
And I want to parse this out a little bit for everyone. So as we move into the seraphim from this basis that we now have, the three sets of wings, the, the ruby, the fiery wings, and the idea of the symbol of the snake in the garden as a symbol on the tree, on the pole, which becomes the caduceus, as we know. I want to kind of break them down a little bit before we start moving into how they play out deeper into the bloodlines and uh, move into the idea of of that, of blood, actually, the holy blood. Okay, sure. And so if we're talking about the serpent imagery that is in Eden and understand he's described as a trubum in Ezekiel when he's in Eden and not in his seraphic form. Understand that obviously Satan is connected to the serpent in Eden, probably either through coaching on the side or being the avatar with an Akash being the avatara. So we need to understand that the serpent in Eden is a different being. The serpent in Eden is a being that had speech. Yes. It had intelligence. It had limbs. It had legs. And it had a knowledge, and you, as you take the word Nakash back into this roots word, it becomes more enchanter and sorcerer and in with sort of all of the, the arts of, of the occult. So the, the Nakash being, which is accounted for in its creation in the Bible, is already in league with and in partner with Satan. And Satan has already fallen and his rebellion would be sometime later. So this Nakash individual is the one who is punished, yeah. not Satan. So Satan doesn't lose his speech, doesn't lose his intelligence, isn't, uh, doesn't lose his legs, isn't forced to crawl on the ground. It is the Nakash. So this is a beast of the field. And beast of the field is a description that is, is describing other types of beings created between days four and five. And so this being would have been the most superior being before the creation of humankind and would have been the most preferred being of the rebellious seraphim angels that they would have had similarity and did just by the descriptions that we get in terms of that that serpent-like name and the connotation you get that they would be looking like a serpent fiery angel a seraphim and that they would have been the preferred as the rulers and the priest class before adam is created and this is the one that is going to lose on earth this species of people is going to lose so much if Adam is permitted uh, and Eve as Eve is created after Adam to fulfill their destiny, right? They're going to be the ones that are going to inherit everything on the earth. And so we do get some versions of this Nakash in some of the Gnostic Gospels. And they actually say it was as tall as a camel Mm. and it was definitely serpent-like. And so... After the fall, you have the punishment of the serpent. But does the but the question I, I tend to ask is were all the cash punished and forced to be what we would know as the various snakes around the world today? Or did some of the rebellious angels or the gods save some of those, whether it's in the earth, off the earth, or recreated the cash? afterwards we don't know but you get a recurring reptilian sort of mythos that comes down in several different lanes throughout history and into our time today and so if some of those were saved and there's a case to be made for gods and and fallen angels saving beings whether or not from the flood and other catastrophes that 
that's a possibility that I try and warn people to be aware of so that when you hear about these kinds of beings, you have a frame of reference that you need to be taking into account. This is very significant and it's something, it's definitely on the table of what I wanted to get at today. When we're parsing this out, I really just wanted to pull everything that we could to understand this. This is significant in when we also look at this kind of this idea of we see the three is a very powerful number and the Trinity, obviously, but we've got, you know, the, the Leviathan, the flying dragon, the gliding and coiling, this kind of in my head as I ponder the idea makes up a Trinity of sorts. What I'm doing, Gary, is trying to figure stuff out. I have no answers. And I'm trying to connect dots. And so I do apologize if I come off as naive with some some information. But this is why I wanted to engage with you so that I could personally and bring this forward to other people through my searching, hone out some of these ideas that seem to be nebulous well you have similar sort of ideologies no matter where you go about that number of three and how that sort of fits into those types of religions so the easiest way to quickly sort of get people to understand i think what you might be you know talking about is if you go to the uh offspring gods in egypt you have osiris Yes. And Isis. And of course, that's the male and the female. So that would cover off just sort of quickly as, 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 uh, what would be referred to in, in monotheism as God and the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. And then you would have the word which became the son. And so you would have an offspring that would be the son in polytheism, which is usually pretty normal. And in this case is Horus. Now Horus is a falcon God um, or a raven God, an Anunnaki kind of God um, that uh, we also have evidence around of creating offspring as well looked similar to them but that's that's another rabbit hole um, <laughs> <laughs> um but what we do have is is that is something to keep in mind and so the demi and and so horse would be not like a human it would be similar to how people want to view jesus and of course there's a lot of religions around the world that recognize jesus as a prophet they just don't recognize him as deity status or the word that came from god yeah. and so that's where the views will will sort of split on on on, on jesus but the demigods which horace would have been by the descriptions as we get uh, coming out of Egypt mythology and history, is that he would have been at least a demigod, um, if not full god status. So, and the demigods, if people don't know the difference between a god and a demigod, it's one of those keys to understand that various religions around the world is that you have the parent gods. Uh, that somehow are overthrown by the offspring gods. And then you have demigods, which is defined in the ancient definition, and it's still in a lot of dictionaries today as the archaic definition, is the offspring of a god and a human female. So partly divine and partly human. So in polytheism, for example, the best way to describe that and with some of the ingredients would be in the Epic of Gilgamesh, where you have the survival of the Ark at Napishtim and his whole family. They're archetypical demigods. So there are two-thirds god and one-third human, just as both Enkidu and Gilgamesh are described in the same way. And so these are the demigods, and the demigods are physical beings that were originally given an immortal spirit until scripturally that God steps in in Genesis 6, 3 and limits life going forward to 120 years. But their spirits for their offspring were initially immortal and their spirits don't go to sleep. So, and they're not allowed into heaven 
And so these are, you know, become the demons. And the demons answer to Satan, as Satan is described, again, as part of his title as the Prince of Demons. And so we need to keep that in mind. And one of the confusing things about polytheism at times is, is how did the lower gods overthrow the immortal parent gods? And what happened to them if they're immortal, if they couldn't die? Yes. Which is something that, you know, I can understand a rebellion. And so here's what I'm talking about. So Zeus would be, let's say, in, in the Greek pantheon, would be, you know, the offspring of, of Kronos um, and, and another goddess, uh, generally Gaia, as, as, as I recall, uh, producing Zeus or Zeus. And Zeus produces offspring with human females as well as gods within the in 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 the in the physical realm with another god goddess to create those other gods which are offspring gods of them but different than the demigods which is uh, the offspring of a human female from a god like hercules or theseus or pericles and all the fabulous names that you get through history or Poseidon <laughs> uh, with climbing creates Atlas. And of course, all the, the demigod kings that ruled the uh, empire uh, of Atlantis. I'm not convinced that uh, they actually overthrew the parent gods. If I look at, for example, the Gnostic gospel of Pista Sophia, yeah. You get this description of all of these parent god-like angels that are in the abyss. The only one that's not there is Satan. Um, and he, you know, he's degraded and he has a role to play, but he's not in the abyss. And he didn't go uh, to the abyss if he's the one who, as again in the Gnostics and some of the Christian uh, versions, would have him as the father of Cain through Eve or other um, uh, female consorts. Um, there's several different versions of it. But he didn't go to the abyss for violating the laws of creation as the other ones did. But you get this description of all of these seraphim-type angels and ones with multiple heads like a hydra and then multiple-headed jackal gods. And it's a, it's a fabulous description of these angels that are in the abyss. So you would have to say that the offspring gods rebelled and then locked the parent gods up, so they're still alive. And in the monotheist version, God puts these rebellious angels in there for having impassioned illegal violations with human females to create the demigod Nephilim and giants, as they're called in Christianity, and they're put into the, the abyss. Now, that would make sense if why you have, and that would be around the timing of the flood, because after the flood, you get sort of a dominance of these offspring gods, whether or not it's Baal um, uh, and a gnat of the Canaanite pantheon, and the parent god of Baal is El, E-L, which is Hebrew for a god, as uh, in an angel and or almighty God. And Baal creates offspring as well called uh, Raphaim, as you read into the Ugaritic text. And they're actually doing incantation uh, rituals to uh, that are fertility rituals, rituals for Baal to come back and to create more because they have a fertility issue. Uh, but Baal doesn't. So one presumes that you have another creation of, of Raphaim giants after the flood. And these are the Baalim that is talked about, which is the I am plural, which is important to understand that as words come out of Hebrew. And one presumes they're put into the abyss as well for their crimes. And then they're replaced by gods that succeed because we know in Psalms 82, you still have the council of the gods. So I think that's a better answer is either God put all of those angels in there because someone, for some reason, Enlil and Anki and Zeus, all of these gods disappear. Yeah. And these are all impassioned angels. So I think they actually go to the abyss as well. And what's important to understand about that is those are the angels that will be released 
in the yes. end time <laughs> in Revelation 9. <laughs> oh, Lord. <laughs> I have two questions here while we're here. So another example might be, say, like the Gorgon Medusa. Was she condemned to the pit as well? Like if we move through into that mythos. Because there's the, you well, know, the Gorgons are yeah. a different set. Yeah. I think along with the impassioned angels, the worst of and the most evil of those gods and angels went into the abyss as well. And that would include some of the offspring gods. So let me explain an example of why I might say that, other than it sort of logically makes some sense. Mm-hmm. You have a goddess that uh, is very much Leviathan-like as the parent god in the Sumerian pantheon and would have counterparts as that serpent type of parent god in all of the pantheons. And her name is Tiamat. Yes. Yeah, the dragon. Tiamat, yeah. And whether or not Tiamat is described as a Lotan or Yam or Virtu and all the different names. You have this individual in all cultures around the world. And you have the female that is killed, whether or not it's by Marduk or it's Baal or it is God in the Bible, um, to kill the female so that it, it won't sort of over populate the earth yes. and Tiamat <laughs> <laughs> without going too far down that rabbit trail um, and the Which second would one include is be killed the, in the end time as Isaiah talks about so well that would but, include the blood of Medusa because she, it, it also procreates yes so and you get the and you get kind of those descriptions I think in Pista Sophia as my 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 memories go as perhaps being in that abyss. But again, you get these, these, uh, all of these accounts of that this individual uh, parent god is uh, somehow slain. So you have to be aware of that too. So maybe not in the abyss. But Tiamat, before she's overthrown, killed, or thrown into the abyss as part of the parent gods, creates a group of beings called the Akrabamalu and the Gurdamalu. And Akrabamalu, the first part of that word is Akrab, which is Hebrew for scorpion. And so when you get into ancient words, you find similar transliterations all around the Middle East because they were so closely related in, in, in the families and the languages. And so these beings are described as scorpion-like beings. And... They protected uh, the sun-worshipping temples, the palaces, and kept the lower gods, the offspring gods, in line. So it was this powerful being that could destroy worlds, as the Kishamaya accounts talk about, and the Aztec accounts talk about these scorpion gods. And these are the same descriptions used to describe the Krabamalu and the Gurdabalu as what is described as the scorpion beings led out by Abaddon Apollyon, who I think is Azazel, out of the abyss as the king of the abyss. So not only are there impassioned angels in there, you have the scorpion beings that, that, that are in there as well. And after Tiamat was killed, then they guarded the entrances to the other world. So, where the you know when you get and when you look at polytheist pantheons, there's this ongoing traveling from the other world and the underworld to this physical world. So in another different dimension within the earth, and this is important to understand dimensions because the abyss would be in that underworld or Sheol as it's described in Hebrew, and located somewhere in the underworld and also in another dimension just as heaven is in another dimension so as we're learning in science these are the dimensions that our ancients knew about that we're just now starting to get familiar with and i mentioned this as we came into this conversation is angles they're literally sacred geometry and angles of consciousness 
Yeah, there are. I mean, sacred geometry makes up the universe. Yeah. I mean, everything is based on information and communicating of that information and broken down through mathematics and geometry and everything else. So if you, if you understand that that's sort of at sort of the base level and that angels would be um, part of that sort of etymology of angles as it comes out in one of the sciences, which is the fifth science of the sacred sciences yes. of geometry, which is also <laughs> known as masonry, and that all of the sacred sites have this sacred geometry and celestial body alignment and a whole bunch of other things encoded into them in a way we can't do today, all of this starts to make sense because they're trying to honor their pantheon of gods that provided all of this knowledge to them to do the things that we can't even do today. So yes. we, need to, we need to understand that all of this is connected. And I'm not talking about knowledge as being in an evil way. We need to understand that all of this is connected how it's applied yes. that makes it good or evil and that's the important thing to remember well that's the i mean that's just one of the sacred keys to remember and how uh we choose to in the choices we make use the tools and uh that comes down to a whole different rabbit hole while we're still here and kind of getting close to the end of this first segment i want to Explore a little bit the idea of, since we're talking about the pit, and I want to relate the pit to, which also relates to the underworld, this other dimension, this other angle of consciousness, uh, into the idea also of, say, Pandora's box. Is there a bridge here? Well, I, I kind of think so. I mean, Pandora's box is an opening at one level to all sorts of knowledge and technology that may not be meant for this world. And all sorts of creations and things will come out of that Pandora's box, which we have significant testimony around the world in all the different religions and cultures, whether or not you've got things like centaurs or... Um, Pegasus or Chimera and on and on and on. There's just an endless list of these things that are all created. You know, Pandora's box is sort of the Greek version, but Bast and Tiamat, yes. who, who are in other pantheons, did the same sort of thing. And Bast is that god that was uh, mentioned as being the uh, a god that uh, Black Panther uh followed uh, in the movie Black Panther, and that's because Bast is a lion-type god, and so uh, that's where you get that panther connection in, in that movie. And again, all of this information is laced into our yeah. entertainment. And Sekhmet, yeah. Yeah, Mahis, yes. you know, Nergal in the Sumerian uh, pantheon. So those lion gods are, are kind of known all around the world, and they also seemingly created offspring demigods as well. Not as powerful as the seraphim offspring, but you have several different forms of offspring of gods that come down through legend. I know this is off topic, but seeing as how I opened up the door, I'll just <laughs> you, close you it off here as quick as I can. <laughs> but yeah, you've, you, you've got yeah, Pandora's box, so to speak, of creations, right? Um, but you've got you know, bird, uh, raven, and including of Batman with the Kamazot's house of the Zabelba and the Kishamaya as being these warrior demigods and kings. You have the serpentine ones from the seraphim angels, uh, which are the most common one. And you have the uh, jackal gods or dog gods uh, from Anubis and gods like that. Um, and the Baz out of uh, Sumeria. Uh, that would have produced it in God, you know, gods in Greek pantheon would have that as well. And then you have these lion men of Moab and, and, uh, Ergo, Ergolulu and Ermolulu warriors that are in Sumeria and in the Bible and in, um, Egyptian uh, mythology and reliefs that are absolutely spectacular yes. <laughs> on showing what they look like. But, they may or may not be included in that 
and or is boxed or not. But what I do know is, is that is knowledge that comes out of that box as an allegory or a portal to another dimension. And so when we're talking about the knowledge that we're lacking today compared to what these seven sacred sciences did before the flood, and then merged with the illicit knowledge from heaven or from the gods, because all cultures talk about this knowledge that came from the gods that created civilization and all of these great megaliths and things like that, and that we're still catching up to that. When we're talking about the knowledge that is coming, that is leading to things like quantum computing and AI, mm -hmm. that's the knowledge of interdimensional access. Yes that will allow and permit people to possibly go between those dimensions and, and access the knowledge that is harnessed in that information around the universe. And one of the things that I think CERN is looking for, as well as the abyss, because it's marrying AI and, and uh, quantum computing to get into those different dimensions and to get into the abyss, yes, but also they're searching for something that it has an allegory of a god particle and mythos around that. It's actually out of the Upanishads and the Indian uh, Vedas yes. called the Atma or the Atman particle, which is an invisible particle that merges with other particles. And this is the particle that holds the knowledge of the universe and the information that has passed instantaneously through the physical universe through quantum entanglement. That's the particle they're looking for to access that Pandora's box of, 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 of knowledge. This is ultimately where my uh, queries have been going. And so we're talking about vessels. So we entered into this through the pit and Pandora's box and all this, which to me are vault vessel sealed, uh, sacred portal, quantum stuff like D-Wave, right, and CERN. And then ultimately, which does circle back to bloodlines, Genetics, genetic harvesting, genetic seeding through the earthly plane, if you will. And that was where I wanted to, you know, the springboard here was parsing out these ideas through the angelic order. And in specific, you know, we were focusing in on and we're going to further the seraphim as they've come in through the modern idea in the alternative community as the reptilian gods or as the reptilians, the Draco reptilians from the dragon to the serpent. And in the second half here, I would like to dive through this idea, through this portal, if you will, into that. So then into these sacred bloodlines, holy blood, holy grail, all that stuff, uh, and understand the idea of blood rights, of sacrifice, and possible how we see this unfolding narrative in current culture of cannibalism. And you you talked a bit about this with my friend, my good friend, uh, James Bartley. And James and I talk about this a lot. And so that's kind of where I want to head this on the second segment now that we have this overall groundwork set so with that let's uh wrap this first section up and let people know how they can reach you where you are in the world and how uh how it is they can source this information from you yeah, the best way to get a hold of me is through my website, the Genesis Six Conspiracy.com. That's the Genesis Six Number Six Conspiracy.com. And on there, there's an icon you can click on that uh, says contact the author. Um, and the address on there is pretty simple to remember. It's the Genesis Six Conspiracy. So Genesis Six Conspiracy at gmail.com. So that's the best way to get a hold of me. So if you're looking for some extra information on what we're talking about, if I've got a document, I'll send it to you. Or if you want to ask a question or make a comment, 
or you can also get a hold of me on Facebook. That's the only other social media I'm on right now um, until I sort out where I'm going with all of the crazy things going on in the world today. Um, through Gary Wayne, that's uh, and just look for my book and my picture on there. And you can, it's an open line. You can get a hold of me through there or through Messenger. And there he goes, Gary Wayne. This is the first session of mini we're really going to hash out some of this information and hopefully i can thread through different avenues than what is already out there with gary because there is a great amount out there thankfully and so i have my own lens and vision of where i want to go so this was laying the groundwork And then in the second section of this series, we really dive deep into the bloodlines aspect. And then I have him scheduled again for March, and then hopefully in April. We're going to continue on until I can get to where I want to go. So bloodlines is where we start. I would like to thank the producers of this show, Michael Watcher. Marcy Shapiro, Santa Rebecca, Jason Lamson, Melanie Poe, Christy Tesmer, and Marin Kramer, as well as all the other patrons through Patreon. With this, I hope that we can start to understand collectively that all this ties in way beyond the canon and forward and backwards and to the side that there is something going on that feels much bigger and that is where in the space of dreaming becoming lucid and accessing the ability to time travel within your own timeline becomes a very powerful thing thank you for joining me on the Cosmic Salon.